Welcome to Public Policy This Week, a well-rounded weekly discussion of policy issues that frame today's American experience. Good morning. It's Friday, October 6th, and you've joined us for Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio. Public Policy This Week runs the gamut on policy subjects, from neighborhood concerns to municipal, state, and national-level issues. Everything is fair game. Our objective is civil, thoughtful dialogue about important public policy issues in order to share ideas and find solutions to move society forward. I'm Steve Poskanzer, Professor of Political Science and President Emeritus at Carleton College. And today on Public Policy This Week, we're going to preview the Supreme Court's 2023-24 term. In accordance with tradition, that term officially kicked off this week on the first Monday in October. So it's very timely for us today to discuss several of the most prominent cases on the court's current docket. My guest for this important show is Professor Alan Rosenstein of the University of Minnesota Law School. Alan's an expert on constitutional law and cybersecurity law and a leading voice on broader issues of law and technology. He's also one of my favorite and most astute court watchers, which is why over the last year we've done a series of shows, first anticipating how the court will view pressing issues of constitutional law, and then debriefing the results. Alan, it's great to have you back on public policy this week for what I think is our third appearance together. It's my pleasure. I'm I'm delighted that we're making this a tradition. Excellent. I like it too. I spoke just a moment about the court hearing the most pressing constitutional law issues, but I suspect many listeners may not fully appreciate how much control, how much autonomy the court has in deciding which cases it's going to hear. Can you briefly describe the process of how the judges decide to hear a case? So the Supreme Court, uh, there are some cases that it has to hear. Uh, But over the years, Congress has given the court more and more control over its own docket. Um, At this point, the vast majority, 99% uh, in many terms, uh, the cases that the court hears uh, are discretionary, which is to say the court chooses to hear those cases because it wants to. Um, Every year, the court gets six, seven, eight thousand what are called uh, petitions for a writ of certiorari, um, which basically uh, is a petition for the Supreme Court to hear the decision and review the decision of a lower court, whether a lower court of appeals or a state Supreme Court. And of those six, seven, eight thousand cases, the court hears about 70 or 80 cases every term. So we're talking about one, two percent of uh, all the cases that the court is asked to hear, the court decides to hear. Um, and those numbers to, have been going down in recent years, right? The court's actually hearing fewer cases than it used to? They, they have they have been going down. Um, the, the numbers have been going down, and at the same time, the lengths of opinions have been going up. So the court appears to be deciding that it wants to hear fewer cases, but discuss each of those cases in greater depth, which is something uh, that has been the subject of, of criticism from across the political spectrum, especially from folks, and I think I'd include myself as one of them, who thinks that um, the court just needs to do a little more work and answer some more legal questions, and if it has to do it more concisely, that's, that's okay. And to grant cert takes four votes of the justices. That's right. I mean, formally, it takes five votes. I mean, everything on the Supreme Court is done by a majority vote. Uh, But by tradition, if there are four justices who want to hear a case, um, the court will grant that case. A fifth justice will agree out of sort of courtesy um, to hear that case. So in practice, if four justices want to take a case up 
the case will go up. Now, last Tuesday, the justice held what was called their long conference, during which they added several cases to their docket. But there's also still room at this point for the court to add several more cases as national events or developing law require, right? They kind of leave themselves a little bit of slack in the docket? Absolutely. Um, they're, they're constantly reviewing uh, petitions. Uh, they're constantly granting them. And the reason that there's this long conference is because they have a backlog of over the summer when they've been on recess, a bunch of cases. And so this is a, a good opportunity to get together and clear the decks, as it were, and figure out at least the first few months of argument. Um, but both as sort of cases bubble up and also if there are um, big national issues that happen, uh, some of which we'll probably talk about uh, in the next hour, um, the court is always able to sort of on a dime you know, hear a case. I think it's really important for listeners to understand that the court is an unusual court and that it has that much room and control over its own docket. Um, and that's something that makes our Supreme Court different from those in other countries. So even as the docket may evolve over the course of the term, let's turn right now to several of the biggest cases before the court, starting with two cases that deal in different ways with what I think is an overarching question about the scope and impact of federal regulations and the modern administrative state. You know, the federal government includes a variety of independent regulatory agencies like the Federal Trade Commission, Federal Communications Commission, and also there are regulatory agencies and officials within executive departments like the Department of State or the Department of Energy. These agencies, these officials have the power to issue federal rules and to interpret congressional statutes. But many politicians and advocacy groups rail against this as kind of big government run amok or even, you know, the bureaucratic deep state. And as part of this debate, I would say that perhaps the most controversial case coming before this court this year is Loper Bright Enterprises versus Ramondo. This is a case that poses a direct challenge to decades of established precedent holding that when a regulatory statute is ambiguous, courts should defer to the regulatory agency's interpretation and the regulations if they're reasonable. This policy of deferring to the wisdom of a regulatory agency is commonly referred to as the Chevron Doctrine because it was established by the Supreme Court in the 1984 case of Chevron USA versus National Resources Defense Council. Over time, the Chevron Doctrine has become a central pillar of administrative law and a key defense for many environmental and other rules. But skeptics of federal regulation have long hated the Chevron Doctrine, and the Loper Bright Enterprises case may see its demise. In this case, plaintiff herring fisheries are contesting Commerce Department regulations that require them to pay for federal monitors, that's actual individuals, who will ride on their boats. Lower federal courts have held for the government, applying the Chevron deference to the agency's interpretation of the statutes and its regulations. Long introduction, but here's the critical question, right? Why is the Chevron rule so controversial? Why shouldn't Congress be able to delegate to a regulatory agency that has a lot more expertise and can frame the wisest regulations, even addressing matters that Congress didn't fully anticipate or understand? So the short version for why the Chevron doctrine has come to be viewed in some circles as controversial, and I want to emphasize it's really mostly controversial on the right, 
um, not really controversial in the center or left of legal thinking, uh, is that it seems to be in some tension with how we generally think of the separation of powers, where we have three branches of government and each largely does its own thing, where you have the legislative branch, which writes the laws, you have the executive branch, which implements the laws, and you have the judicial branch, which interprets the laws. And the reason the Chevron Doctrine is controversial is because it purports to take some of the interpretive power that we usually think is the providence of the courts, and it gives it uh, not to the legislature even, but it gives it directly to the executive branch. And so you have a situation in which the executive branch now has uh, a bunch of powers combined. Not only does it get to implement the laws, but it gets to interpret the laws. And because, as everyone understands, interpreting vague laws involves some amount of making new law, um, because the way you interpret ambiguous law is inevitably by making new law, even if that's not exactly what you're claiming to be doing. Um, Chevron gives the executive branch a lot of power. And that's always where the um, discomfort uh, with the doctrine has come from. Now, there are very good reasons for the doctrine. Um, you know, as you pointed out, um, it's very difficult for Congress to be able to legislate every detail of what it wants the executive branch to do. And so inevitably there will be ambiguities. And if there are ambiguities, don't we want the executive branch agency that has more expertise and is more democratically accountable than the courts to interpret those ambiguities? These are the reasons for Chevron. Um, but it has been always in some tension uh, with the general idea that um, in our constitutional system, it's the courts that interpret the law and that for separation of powers reasons, we don't necessarily want to uh, combine a bunch of different powers in one branch of the government, lest it become too powerful. You know, the, the notion of Congress passes, executive branch enforces, judicial branch interprets, everybody who took their civics class in junior high school learned that. Sounds great on paper, but the actual mechanics of governing a modern country make it very hard to do that, which is why these administrative agencies arose, especially like in the you know late 19th century and then certainly during the New Deal era. If you ended up in a place where the court actually struck down Chevron, is it realistic from a practical perspective to think that Congress would actually be able to write sufficiently detailed legislation to cover technical matters like regulatory agencies do? No. And that's why uh, few people expect the court, I think, to actually strike down Chevron in this case. And even if they were to strike down Chevron, Chevron would sort of reappear anyway. One of the interesting features of the Chevron doctrine was that although it's named after this particular case in the 1980s, um, the Supreme Court, when it issued that case, did not purport to invent a new doctrine. They actually were claiming that they were just codifying what courts had been doing for decades on the logic that, well, of course, courts will defer to some extent to the executive branch when interpreting ambiguous statutes because courts recognize that they're not trained experts in environmental law or species protection law or energy law or whatever the case is. Um, and so there's a sense in which, um, you know, uh, if we got rid of Chevron, we'd have to reinvent it anyway. Um, and so really, I think what the fight is about is not, are we going to have something like Chevron or not? It's given that we're going to have some degree of deference, whether we call it Chevron or we just call it something else to executive branch agencies, how much are we going to provide? And in what circumstances are we going to let agencies decide that their interpretation is the right one, even if the court thinks that there's a better interpretation? Because again, Chevron um, is not about letting agencies interpret the law 
in ways that the courts think is wrong. Chevron is just about letting agencies interpret the law in the way the courts think is not optimal necessarily, but is reasonable given that when you have an ambiguous statute, there are often multiple reasonable ways of interpreting it. Right. Chevron really starts with a statute that is ambiguous to begin with. Congress can perhaps short circuit this if they want to write the statutes more precisely in the first place. Well, that's right. I mean, Congress can short circuit if they want to do that. And the courts can also short circuit it by denying that statutes are ambiguous. And so in particular, a standard, the standard Chevron fact pattern is you have a statute and the agency says, hey, this statute is ambiguous as to whether or not it allows us a particular power. It allows us a particular um, ability to enforce or regulate or whatnot. Uh, because it's ambiguous, we get Chevron deference. And because our interpretation is reasonable, we win. That's the standard. So the courts could reject that by saying, no, 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 Chevron deference isn't a thing. Or they can do something else, which is what they've actually been doing over the past few years, which is to say, no, you're wrong that the statute is ambiguous, because if Congress doesn't explicitly give you a particular power, they're explicitly not giving you that power. So really, um, what the courts can do and what I suspect they will do, either in this case or just generally, is just to increasingly say or increasingly deny the predicate to Chevron deference, which is to say that a statute is in fact ambiguous just because it doesn't explicitly not give the agencies the power. So essentially, it'll switch the presumption from statutes being ambiguous if they don't say anything about an agency power to statutes being unambiguous um, when they don't say anything about giving an agency a particular power. Makes sense. From a practical standpoint, what could be the implications of this case, especially for the Biden administration's efforts to issue regulations on climate change, including EPA rules about carbon emissions? Yeah, the, the implications could be that it further restricts them. The, the, the reason I'm a little skeptical that this is going to be such an important case is because over the past few years, the courts have actually already gone a fair bit of the way <laughs> to restricting the ability of agencies to invoke the Chevron doctrine. Like West um, Virginia versus... EPA a couple of years ago. Ex right? Exactly. Um, so in particular, over the past few years, the court has developed a robust um, what they call the major questions doctrine, which is a principle of statutory interpretation that basically gets at what we were just talking about, that if um, a uh, statute is silent um, on whether or not an agency gets a substantial regulatory authority, the courts won't interpret that as an ambiguity. Rather, they'll interpret that as an explicit restriction from Congress on giving the agency that authority. Now, those those cases have already been um, issued and they've already had a profound limiting effect on the administrative state, which is why I actually suspect um, that the way the court will resolve this case is by preserving Chevron. And they'll be able to say, look, we're not getting rid of Chevron. We're preserving it. We're not a radical court. Right. We respect precedent um, because they don't need to actually get rid of Chevron to accomplish their deregulatory agenda. They've already done that, um, which is, again, why uh, uh, it's not the Chevron doctrine that's fundamentally important here. It's really the the previous step of um, uh, when do you, when reading a statute, determine that silence is ambiguity. So you can skin this cap more than one way. You don't necessarily have to overturn Chevron, even though Justice Thomas is on record as saying that Chevron's in serious tension with the Constitution. That may just be staking out a position on his part. That's right. I mean, look, Ju Justice Thomas has always been more willing to have somewhat more um, 
kind of, uh, let's call him extremist views when it comes to constitutional law. Extremist mm -hmm. here just meaning he's been willing to sort of interpret his theories quite literally, and he's been willing to overrule precedent. And of course, Justice Thomas's influence is greater now that there is a 6-3 conservative majority than it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago. At the end of the day, though, he's still one justice. So he can write whatever he wants to write, but he needs to get um, uh, at least four other conservatives to join him. And while justices Alito and Gorsuch um, do share something of Thomas's willingness to um, make large sweeping changes to constitutional law, um, the chief justice certainly does not and has shown himself to not be willing to do. And even justices Kavanaugh and uh, Barrett are actually, institutionally speaking, much more moderate than the three truly ultra-conservative justices. And to be honest, I'm just doubtful uh, that he's going to find, beyond Gorsuch or Alito, uh, two more votes to yeah. truly overturn Chevron. Okay, so your prediction on this one, Chevron survives and uh, Commerce Department regulations probably upheld? That's true. But again, Chevron survives because it's already so weakened. Exactly. Right. And there's another way just in terms of going to whether or not a statute is ambiguous in the first place to kind of limit or constrain the unbridled administrative rulemaking. Exactly. You're listening to Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1 in Northfield, Minnesota. I'm Steve Poskanser. I'm talking to Professor Alan Rosenstein of the University of Minnesota Law School. Okay, Alan, let's go to a second case challenging, I still think, the foundations of the modern administrative state. And this long name on this one, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau versus Community Financial Services Association of America Limited. Uh, this case raises an important question about whether the creation and operation of the CFPB, that's the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, violates the Appropriations Clause, which is Article One, Section 9 of the Constitution. The CFPB was established by Congress as an independent regulatory agency after the financial crisis of 2008 in order to safeguard individual consumers of financial products and services. It's long been a target of banks, other lending businesses, and, of course, skeptics of federal regulatory bureaucracy. This litigation originally arose as a challenge to payday lending rules that have been adopted by the CFPB, but it's now gone way beyond that. It now is a case that really involves the structure and maybe even the very existence of the Bureau itself. The CFPB, listeners should know, has a very unusual funding mechanism. Instead of receiving congressionally appropriated money each year, the Bureau instead receives its funding through the Federal Reserve. So, Alan, here's my first question for you on this case. Can you explain to listeners why the plaintiffs in this case believe that this method of funding arguably violates the Appropriations Clause? So the idea behind the Appropriations Clause is that Congress is the branch of government that is constitutionally empowered and obligated to determine the nation's spending. And this is important not just because spending is important and we'd all like to make sure that our tax dollars are going to where we want them, but because spending is the key way in which the legislative branch controls the executive branch. As we saw recently over the uh, near government shutdown, and as we might see in a few weeks when uh, the continuing resolution expires, if Congress does not fund the government, the government stops functioning. And while this is perhaps 
um, inconvenient, it reflects an important democratic principle, which is that um, without this power, the executive branch would have very little reason to care about what Congress did. And Congress would have relatively few checks over the executive branch. Um, there's a, a famous description in the Federalist Papers of uh, Congress having the power of the purse while the executive branch has the power of the sword. And so if you give the power of the purse to the executive branch, then the executive branch has the power of the purse and the sword. And you get back to what we we're talking about earlier, which is the mixing of a lot of powers in one branch of government, which is something that the framers are concerned about. And it's something that there's a reason to be concerned about even today. Indeed. And so the concern in this case is that because the CFPB doesn't need to go to Congress and get appropriations every year, or it doesn't need um, uh, you know, all of its appropriations from Congress every year, um, it's less accountable to Congress. And so the concern is that that goes against the structure of the Constitution. Now, there are good counter arguments there, uh, but that's the kind of prima facie case that the petitioners are making against the CFPB's funding structure and why this is like a profound constitutional question, not just a funding question. And it's also very much a, a textual argument. It's looking at the language of that section and saying that, you know, through appropriations, unless you do it through an appropriation, it isn't in compliance with the Constitution. So m maybe, I mean, one way of making the argument is as a textual one, but that, of course, just begs the question of what does it mean to appropriate, right? Why can't we just define appropriate as, well, at some point, Congress wrote a statute that created the CFPB and it appropriated some initial amount or the appropriation was CFPB go and charge fees. Um, I think it's actually less of a textual argument and more of a, a structural argument, which is to say, you step back, you look at the Constitution like a, a finely tuned machine, and you try to figure out, okay, what is the fine tuning? And one of the fine tuning mechanisms is that Congress controls the purse strings, and that's how it oversees the executive branch. And so if you deviate too much from that, you throw the machine out of balance. Um, and then the question is, how much out of balance is too much out of balance? And I think that's actually the question that the court uh, has to grapple with in this case. And that structural argument really is fundamentally about accountability and separation of powers again, which is why, to my mind, the CFPB case and the Loper Bright Enterprises, as well as a couple of other cases, of course, hearing this year, are really trying to go back to this issue of have we struck the right balance or has the executive branch slash the modern administrative state gotten out of its lane? Yeah, exactly. I, at least when it comes to um, these kinds of activities. Um, there are other situations in which the conservative justices seem actually quite uh, happy to empower the executive branch. So it's sort of all about um, how you slice and dice the powers of the executive branch. Let's go back to the CFPB case. If the plaintiffs were to prevail, what would this mean for the future of the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau, as well as the validity of everything it's done since it came into being in 2008? That is an excellent question. Um, so the, the substantive question of is the CFPB funding structure constitutional is related to but separate from the remedies question of if it's not constitutional, what do we do with this mess? And here there's just a variety of options. So the court could say, well, if it's unconstitutional now, it's been unconstitutional the whole time, and therefore every single thing that they've done is null and void. Um, I suspect the court would not do that because the... Um, chaos that that would create in the financial markets, especially the consumer banking sector, would be enormous. Um, and I just I just don't think, again, looking at, you know, 
where there are five votes. I don't think that Roberts or Kavanaugh, who have generally been very sensitive to business interests, want to do that. Well, let me um, reinforce so, that because, you know, this is a case that has potentially much broader implications because the CFPB isn't the only part of the federal government that is funded, you know, outside of the conventional appropriations process, right? The same could be said of a range of independent government entities, including the Federal Reserve itself, uh, the controller of the currency, the FDIC that protects our bank accounts, Medicare, even Social Security. I mean, if the CFPB's funding stream is unconstitutional, where does it leave those entities, right? Yeah, it's it's deeply unclear. And, and this is why I think actually as well, you know, as with the Chevron case, I think this is going to be a case where the government wins um, in large part because of, uh, of, of that reason. Um, but getting back to the remedies question, you know, even if the CFPB loses in this case, maybe only its prospective uh, actions get invalidated or, or maybe the court says something like, well, look, um, we're going to give Congress six months to rejigger the funding structure for the CFPB. There are, there are lots of ways that the court could make its point, but without creating a huge amount of chaos. But again, for the reasons you just mentioned, I actually suspect that the court is probably going to uh, find in favor of, of the CFPB. And you know, this is one of these cases where we actually have the benefit of oral argument, which, yeah. which happened very recently. And one thing that was quite notable was um, that the argument for the petitioners was just not getting a lot of joy for the justices, including the conservative ones, including, honestly, even Justice Thomas, who you could see or you could hear, um, was getting quite frustrated with the uh, petitioner's lawyer's inability to um, explain where you draw the line uh, such that, you know, in the process of um, in the process of ruling, let's say, for the petitioners, the court doesn't have to get rid of the Federal Reserve and Social Security and Medicare, which, again, I just don't think there are five votes to do. I don't either. I mean, that would be what some commentators would call a prudential approach on the part of the court. And I don't see that you need to scorch the earth of all these other agencies. It was interesting because this oral argument was held, I think, the first day of the term. And at least according to the news accounts, I had the same reaction you did. It didn't seem like the anti-CFPB case was getting a whole lot of traction with the justices. If I had to predict, I'm betting the CFPB survives too. You're listening to Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio, AM 1080, FM 95.1 from our studios in Northfield, Minnesota. I'm Steve Poskanser, and our guest today is Professor Alan Rosenstein of the University of Minnesota Law School. We're previewing the Supreme Court's 23-24 term. Okay, Al, let's turn from a tax on the federal bureaucracy to another hot topic before the court, gun rights, and the case of United States versus Rahimi. This is a case that poses the question whether a federal law that prohibits the possession of firearms by persons subject to domestic violence restraining orders, whether that law violates the Second Amendment. Put this case in a little bit of perspective for our listeners. I'm going to offer a really fast bit of precedential history. In 2008, in the cases of DCV Heller, the Supreme Court recognized for the first time an individual constitutional right under the Second Amendment to possess and carry weapons. Heller involved keeping firearms in one's home for self-defense, especially in, in the case of confrontation. Then in 2022, in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, the court extended this right to bear arms to include publicly carrying arms for self-defense outside of the home. I view United States versus Rahimi as potentially the next 
case in this string of cases potentially expanding Second Amendment rights. So let me ask my really hard question to you. Are there any limits on gun possession that this court would allow? I have absolutely no idea. I mean, one would think that just from a, I hate to say it, reality-based perspective, uh, finding a constitutional right for people who have been convicted of domestic violence to give them the ability to carry arms as a matter for the Constitution would just be untenable, um, given how much we know about the gruesome statistics of victims of domestic violence, largely but not exclusively women, who die at the hands of their abusers, uh, and where those deaths are much more common if there's a gun in the home. Yeah. I mean, if there was ever a situation where you kind of pull back from the brink and say, look, there might be a constitutional right, but constitutional rights are not absolute. And my goodness, if there was any ever a time to restrict a constitutional right to bear arms, this is the time to do it. Um, you'd think that they would do it. But this court has actually been pretty aggressive on the gun rights issue. Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, if you go back to Heller, in Scalia's majority opinion in Heller, he said expressly there that the court's decision didn't necessarily preclude bans on carrying concealed weapons, bans on felons or the mentally ill possessing weapons, regulations limiting the carrying of guns in sensitive locations like schools or government buildings, or limits on the commercial sales of arms. I mean, you would think that the fact pattern in Rahimi falls right into the second of these categories, doesn't it? You, you would, but uh, for a few points on that. I mean, first, Justice Scalia can say whatever he wants, but Justice Scalia is not on the court anymore. And you can um, say this is just dicta that wasn't really the holding. Exactly. Even if it was the holding. Look, the, the court cannot bind itself in the future. They can say whatever they want. And, and even Justice Scalia's point in Heller was Heller doesn't necessarily invalidate these bans. Uh, but it never said that Heller does not invalidate these bans or that these bans are permissible under the Second Amendment, Scalia was just saying, in Heller, we are not addressing these issues, which is, again, you know, fair as far as it goes. Um, but really, it's not Heller that I think is the most relevant case. It's it's Bruin. Yeah, I agree. And when you go back to Bruin, you know, what was striking to me about Bruin is the way that this court right now is singularly focused on history and interpreting the Second Amendment. And in Bruin, they held that only clear evidence of historic regulations that were contemporaneous with the adoption of the Second Amendment could justify any similar current limits on gun possession or use. Doesn't that standard mean it is highly unlikely that you could find examples and regulations? You know, domestic violence was not a major regulatory concern in 1791, even though it existed and probably should have been. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a bunch of stuff to say about that. So first of all, it, it's it's actually not even the issue that domestic violence wasn't a concern, though it wasn't as big of a concern. There actually were domestic violence laws and regulations and punishments going way back, but they didn't actually, we haven't found much evidence that they included taking away people's guns. Um, so if you apply Bruin, you, you are correct. Um, it's probably the case that the Second Amendment uh, should prevail in, in this situation. I think it's very important to appreciate just how radical Bruin was. Um, Bruin is often taken as an originalist opinion, and it is, it, but it is a very radical version of originalism oh, in agree. the following sense. Originalism is the idea that when we interpret the Constitution, we should do so as it was understood at the time of ratification. And that's what the Constitution means today. That's a radical enough 
and contestable enough idea. But Bruin goes much farther than that. Bruin doesn't just say we should interpret the Second Amendment as it was understood in 1789, uh, or let's say in the, during the ratification of the 14th Amendment, when all the Bill of Rights were incorporated against the states in the 1860s. Um, but rather that we should um, uh, only allow those limitations that existed at that time, right? And that we should not do any sort of balancing of constitutional interests versus other interests. This is a much, much more radical version of originalism than we've seen in other cases. And I think the court is, um, uh, it, it has gotten itself into a box. Uh, and the box was to allow Justice Thomas to write the opinion in Bruin um, as the majority opinion, right? Um, they did not need to do that. And I suspect that many of the conservative justices who signed on to the Bruin opinion are hugely regretting that decision. Not because they necessarily regret the outcome in Bruin, but now they have Justice Thomas's, frankly, very, very extreme methodology hanging around their neck. And they have, uh, uh, now they are faced with one of two um, very unpleasant options. One option is to go along with what Justice Thomas wrote in Bruin, to go along with that methodology, and to hold that as a constitutional matter, the Second Amendment gives domestic violence abusers the right to have firearms, right? A, a, a holding that, not to be hyperbolic, but I think is literally true, will lead to many, many predictable deaths, right? That's one option. That's not great. The other option is to say, well, we didn't quite mean what we said in Bruin and we're walking it back. Um, and the court doesn't like to do that because then they essentially have to concede that they made a mistake and they're going to have to deal with a very angry dissent uh, or concurrence in the judgment from Justice Thomas accusing them of betraying originalism. Um, again, you know, as with these other cases, I think that sanity will prevail. And again, I suspect that the court will um, rule against uh, Raimondi here and rule against the idea that the Second Amendment is so expansive and they will not repudiate Bruin, but they will limit it. Because I just think that, again, I just think it's hard to imagine that there are five justices who have the stomach for this level of, ext of extremeness uh, when it comes to uh, the Second Amendment. You know, I want to think you're right. I mean, I think the analytic test laid out in Bruin is so extreme. And, you know, when I teach this class to my students, it's like, what isn't going to be, what could ever be prohibited as a use of guns? under that test with Bruin. It's hard to imagine that anything is. But I also worry that so soon to sort of walk away from Bruin feels like a very different direction for this court to go right now. Your gut says... That, that's, that's true, but you know, in fact, it's actually not that unusual for precedents to be trimmed back very quickly. It, when precedents get trimmed back or overruled, it tends to either happen a very long time in the future when the court has changed composition quite dramatically, or it happens right after the case has been issued, when the court realizes, okay, we made a mistake here. We, we didn't quite appreciate exactly what we were saying, or we didn't realize the effects it was gonna have. So um, we're gonna trim this back and kind of just to explain as a sort of gloss on, on what we meant. That's often what the court does. And, and that's why I'm hopeful um, that this may be a situation where the court realizes that, you know, whatever it is that they wanted to accomplish in Bruin, they. The, the, the methodology, the Justice Thomas methodology they signed on to is just not tenable. Yeah. In some ways, this is a great test case for trying to find a way to walk back a little bit from Bruin, right? I mean, you it, don't exactly. want to be on the side of domestic abusers who are subject to restraining orders, can't 
have a gun. I, I, I don't think so. And again, I, I don't think that Justice Roberts, that Chief Justice Roberts or Justice Kavanaugh or Justice Barrett want to be on that side. Yeah. Or, or could could let me put this way, could st- I don't think anyone wants to be on that side. To be fair to the conservative justices, um, but I, I think that those justices in particular are unlikely to be able to stomach it. Yeah, I don't think they're ultimately going to say that that was the meaning of the Second Amendment, even if you want to go back to the original intention. You listen to public policy this week on KYMN Radio, AM ten eighty, FM ninety five point one. I'm Steve Poskanser. I'm talking to Professor Alan Rosenstein of the University of Minnesota Law School about cases that are coming before the Supreme Court this term. So let's go into a little bit more of a grab bag right now, Alan. What other cases are you especially interested in this term that just draw your attention? So the cases that I'm most interested in um, that will definitely be heard this term are uh, what are called the net choice cases. So this is uh, net choice versus Paxton and Moody versus net choice. They're going to be heard together. And the court uh, agreed to to grant cert on this uh, quite recently, I think as part of the long conference. That's correct. Yeah. Um, And these cases arise out of two laws, one in Florida, one in Texas, uh, that purport to limit what social media companies can do when they moderate content. Right. So social media companies call this content moderation. Uh, Critics call this censorship. But it's basically the practice that's very pervasive across all platforms of not allowing certain things on those platforms. Or even if you allow it, um, making them less salient, demonetizing them, shadow banning. There are a million terms here. And this practice has become more and more controversial, in particular on the right over the last several years, especially in the wake of uh, Twitter, uh, or uh, what was then the artist uh, formerly known as Twitter, um, and and Facebook banning uh, Donald Trump, uh, then president, uh, from the platforms um, after the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Um, and that began a process of real concern, um, especially among conservatives, but also just among lots of people, even those who are very critical of Trump, that the power of these private platforms to control what we can and cannot say is just too much. And so Florida and Texas both passed these laws. Uh, they're, they're different in their details. The Texas law is sort of broader. It applies to users generally. The Florida law is a little narrower. It applies mostly to news media organizations and politicians. Um, but both of them you know, limit the ability of Facebook to take down your post because they think it's uh, offensive or harmful or hateful or whatnot. And in these cases, the technology companies, uh, through an industry association called NetChoice, Uh, sued, arguing that these laws are themselves unconstitutional, because although they seek to uh, extend the free expression abilities of individuals, they do so by limiting the First Amendment rights of the platforms themselves, which is to say the platform's First Amendment rights to control what they themselves publish. So you've got two conflicting First Amendment claims, essentially. Well, you you have you have two conflicting free expression claims. There you go. So so um, the First Amendment only applies to what's called state action or only applies to actions by the government. So um, the government's not claiming that tech companies have a First Amendment uh, obligation to users uh, or that the government is empowered under the First Amendment itself to regulate social media companies. What they're saying is the underlying value of the First Amendment, which is free expression, is furthered by a law that restricts the ability of tech companies to kick you off their platform. And then the tech companies are making an actual First Amendment argument saying that they have a First Amendment right to control what's on their platform. 
just as a newspaper, for example, has a First Amendment right to decide what op-eds to publish and not to publish. Um, and that these laws violate the First Amendment. Um, and so this is important, um, you know, not just because the issue itself is quite important, uh, but because um, this is going to be the most important case in the history of the Internet, without question. Um, if the Supreme Court actually, um, you know, unlike what it did last year in the Section 230 cases when it ducked the issue, if the Supreme Court actually addresses the issue, which I suspect it uh, it will. And so for folks like me who are sort of law and tech people, um, we're following this case extremely, extremely closely. Um, because again, the actual laws at issue are important and need to be resolved. Um, but also what's super important is how the court resolved the, the, these, these cases. Does it provide platforms with really expansive First Amendment protections that makes future regulation very difficult? Or does it say something like, well, these laws aren't great and they have their problems, so we're going to strike them down. But other laws, more narrowly drawn laws, we would we would expect. And I really think you could go any which way because the kind of coalitions and the ideological valence um, is not obvious when it comes to this issue. So let me throw a question court. at you that you and I haven't talked about in advance. In other contexts, think Citizens United and political speech, the court has been very broad in its accommodation of corporate entities' free speech. By the logic of Citizens United, don't the social media platforms deserve to win this case then? So I'm, I'm not, I wouldn't say that necessarily by the logic of Citizens United. One might say by the vibes of Citizens United. Fair You're enough. absolutely okay. right that there is a kind of pro-corporate uh, slant, but that's changed a lot. I mean, just look at American society in which the Republican Party, which has long been the party of corporations, has in many ways turned against corporations, or at least corporations that it thinks are pushing left or, you know, woke ideas uh, or, or what have you. I mean, much of the contemporary Republican Party, I mean, just look at Ron DeSantis, um, is about going to war with corporations. And, um, you know, justices are people, too. And um, I'm not imputing sort of partisan motivations, but they live in conservative you know, ecosystems. And, I, you know, based on their writings, um, we've seen how Justice Thomas and Justice Alito in particular have become a little bit skeptical of corporate power. Um, in particular in the Section 230 context when it comes to platforms. And so, you know, one can imagine a world in which you can sort of cobble together votes from the extreme right wing of the Supreme Court that thinks that platforms are um, sort of hegemonically leftist. And then the left wing of the Supreme Court, uh, Kagan, Sotomayor and Jackson, uh, who, while probably no fans of these particular laws, are also unlikely to be super excited about giving corporations a ton of power. And so then you have the sort of awkward middle of the Supreme Court that finds itself um, actually outflanked on both sides. I'm not saying that that's what will necessarily happen, but this is a case in which, again, it's not at all pre-baked. And while I suspect that these laws will ultimately be declared unconstitutional because they're not well written laws and they have all sorts of bad side effects, it's not exact. It's not clear to me what the underlying theory will be. It might be much, much more narrow because of this kind of odd bedfellows um, quality to this opinion, which makes it really fun as a law professor to to think about it. Could you imagine that the court attacks this one somewhat prudentially and says statute's ambiguous, and that's where we're going to go at it and leave the broader issue of corporate power over speech for another day? The statute is not ambiguous. That's the problem. These these are the these statutes are big swings. Um, the Florida and Texas laws really went out of their way to hammer these tech companies, and they did so incredibly broadly. It's just not an ambiguous statute, um, uh, which is why I think it's very difficult for the court to um, to punt on this one. Interesting. 
Let's peer into our crystal ball a little bit even beyond the current Supreme Court term. You and I have discussed some cases, including one that was filed pretty recently in Minnesota, alleging that Donald Trump's actions during the events of January 6th disqualify him from holding the office of president pursuant to Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. The question really is, one or more of these cases are eventually going to work their way to the Supreme Court. And can we talk a little bit about the constitutional theory behind these statutes, especially what Section 3 of the 14th Amendment says and what it was meant to do? I guess I'm channeling my original intention argument here. That's right. So um, the 14th Amendment was one of what is called the Reconstruction Amendments. These were enacted uh, during and after the Civil War. Um, the process of of bringing the southern states back into the union but under an altered constitutional regime that did a number of things it got rid of slavery it preserved the the, the right to vote and in the fourth amendment in particular is today mostly known for the equal protection clause but section three of the fourth amendment was um, about a narrower issue and that was what to do about um, the southern secessionists themselves and specifically those people who had rebelled against the country and then wanted to re-enter politics. And the um, uh, you know, Northern Republicans were very, very concerned that if they allowed all of these ex-Confederates to get back into politics, um, once the Southern states were reconstructed, reincorporated back into the Union, um, it would undo a lot of the purpose of the Civil War. So in Section 3 of the 40th Amendment, they, they wrote the, the following. Um, I'm going to condense it a little bit to focus on what they said about the, the uh, uh, federal offices. No person shall hold any office under the United States who, having previously taken an oath as an officer of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the United States or given aid or comfort to the enemies of the United States. And so the idea is, if you were previously a politician or a federal officer, including a military officer, right, including a military officer, and you engaged in insurrection or rebellion, or helped people who engage in insurrection or rebellion, you could not hold office in the future. And so the argument that is being made in the case that was filed in the Minnesota Supreme Court, it's also been filed in other states, Colorado, um, and there will be undoubtedly more uh, lawsuits, is that Donald Trump was president, while president, he either engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the United States, um, or more likely, he provided aid and comfort to those who did. Um, this is where you're looking at trying to overturn the 2020 election, and then, of course, the attacks on January 6th against the Capitol. And therefore, he is ineligible. Um, despite whatever Republican primary voters might want, he is ineligible to serve as president in 2024. Um, and uh, this is basically the case that is going to be litigated, quite possibly, in 50 states, because Someone is going to be able to bring this lawsuit or someone's going to try to bring this lawsuit in every single state of the union. And if even a single state um, holds that Section 3 does, in fact, kick Trump off the ballot, there is no question that the Supreme Court will hear this case uh, and very, very quickly. And if they hear the case, this will not be a case where they can... There's a political question doctrine that the court sometimes looks at where they say we're not going to take this up, you know, with partisan gerrymandering or with, you know, whether which dueling government in Rhode Island is legitimate government. Um, You don't think no political question dodge if this comes before the court. I mean, they could. Right. At the end of the day, the court can dodge whatever it wants to. Um, 
I, I don't think they will, however. This is kind of why we have a Supreme Court. Um, we, we need it to answer questions like this. And um, although the court does sometimes dodge issues because of their political nature, the court is also quite happy to address all sorts of political issues involving issues regarding elections. Bush versus Bush Gore, for Gore. example, is, right. yeah. is a good example of where the court did not dodge the issue. And in fact, the court has in other cases um, addressed um, uh, uh, qualifications for uh, federal office, uh, usually in the context of uh, Congress. Um, but uh, I think that this would be a situation in which in which the court would um, almost certainly uh, almost certainly hear the case, because then you have a, you have a you have a, an election in which Donald Trump just doesn't appear in a bunch of state ballots. And there's no um, there's no authoritative statement one way or the other as to whether that's constitutional or not. You know, if you thought the 2020 certification was messy, just wait until the 2024 in that case. Yeah. And they may have to move really fast on this case, right? Because... It, 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 exactly. And they'd be able to. I mean, the, the, you know, if the court needs to hear an opinion in 36 hours, they can they do can that. Totally I mean, they heard Bush it. versus Gore within a month oh, or absolutely. within a few, few weeks. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the current dynamics within the court. We've alluded to this a little bit earlier. Uh, is there an emerging right slash center block of Roberts and Kavanaugh and maybe Barrett? Or is that uh, to at the end of the term? You know, the New York Times and other places always do their analytic numbers of who voted with who during the term. And kind of the big story in June was, oh, a little bit less conservative, a little bit more pulled back to the center, more Roberts court this year than Thomas's court. What's your gut tell you? I, I think that's right. Um, I think the court has just run out, to be perfectly honest, of low hanging ideological fruit. And what I mean by that is... Um, Dobbs was obviously a very controversial decision, but Dobbs has was pre-cooked the moment Amy Coney Barrett was appointed to the court. And I don't say that conspiratorially. I say that just because this has been the conservative legal movement priority for the last several decades. For sure. And so they were going to overturn Roe versus Wade no matter what the country thought. Then the next term, they uh, struck down affirmative action, of course, quite controversial. But if you actually look at the polling, much, much less controversial than abortion, right? Whereas abortion rights are supported by a majority of Americans, affirmative action is opposed by a majority of Americans. And so as already you and I have talked see, before, you're not seeing the same political backlash on affirmative action that you immediately saw with Dobbs. Exactly, right? So so there you see a little bit of a pullback. You look at the cases this term, um, and uh, really, you know, the one that's gonna be of most salience, which is the Ramondi case about gun rights, that's a real loser for the conservatives. And for the reasons we've talked about, I don't think there's a lot of, uh, uh, there's a lot of um, uh, uh, appetite there. And then the other cases, you know, regarding the const you know, constitution, administrative state, you know, the court has already won, the conservatives have already won a bunch in the last few years. They just don't need to go this much farther. So, you know, what I suspect is that there is a bit of a realignment. I, I don't wanna say that it's a realignment to the center, the Chief Justice, Justice uh, Kavanaugh, and Justice Barrett are very conservative. They are not liberals. They are not squishes. They are not, you know, um, they, they 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 are not, you know, Justice Souter and Justice Stevens or even Justice O'Connor, who or even Justice Kennedy, frankly, who were appointed by Republicans but drifted left. They are conservatives. They are just not extreme conservatives. And so, um, you know, counting votes, I think you have a. Um, you know, you have a durable 6-3 conservative majority, but you also have, I think, an increasingly durable 6-3 uh, 
anti-extreme conservative majority. Mm -hmm. um, if you take the three conservatives who are not extreme plus the three liberals, right? Um, again, if you're a progressive, like that's pretty cold comfort. Um, but if you're someone like me who just mostly just doesn't want the court to do anything crazy, um, I think I think you have to be feeling better this year uh, than you you have been sort of in the past. And I think that's consistent with kind of what you were saying before. In some cases, you can achieve a generally conservative outcome in administrative law, even in gun rights, without having to pile on with a Rahimi or an overturning Chevron or throwing out the Federal Reserve along with the CFPB. That's right. Any sense of how the seemingly never-ending string of disclosures about questionable ethical behavior on the justices is going to play out? Are they going to do the right thing, I'll be opinionated here, and adopt their own code of ethics? Or are they going to just let this thing string out forever? No, I think they'll adopt a code of ethics. This is just too embarrassing. Um, it's just embarrassing for them, frankly. And I think it empowers people like the Chief Justice who care a lot about these sorts of institutional issues. Um, to be honest, I think you're already seeing an effect on the court. Um, the Supreme Court recently denied a petition from John Eastman, one of President Trump's lawyers who tried to overturn the 2020 election. Um, uh, and although the issue was peripheral and didn't matter that much, what was notable about it was that Justice Thomas recused, recused himself yeah. from that denial. Again, in the long in the long run, does it matter so much for that case? No, but it shows that Justice Thomas, who in the past has not recused in these sorts of cases, where in particular his wife Ginny Thomas uh, is um, involved at least peripherally, I think now he's being much more careful, um, and he's he's realizing that he has to play it a little straighter. Um, again, this is on the margin, um, and at the end of the day, um, the you know court is never going to be, I think, as buttoned up or as rigorous as lower courts who have a, a much more um, uh, 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 rigorous congressionally mandated ethics code. Uh, but I do think on the margin, uh, it, it does, uh, it does help. Yeah, I agree. I think that's where we're going to end up. Ellen, any final observations, things I haven't touched on that you really wanted to talk about today? I, I think we, 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 we covered the, the gamut and I just, uh, I hope I can come back as I have in previous years after the, the term ends and we, we can do a recap. You count on it. Absolutely. Okay. It'll be a lot of fun. Well, thank you again, Alan. You are truly a favorite guest for me. Um, another hour flown by. Fascinating conversation, but uh, the clock controls what we can do. So uh, very grateful for Alan for letting me host this show. This concludes our weekly edition of Public Policy this week. Again, we're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080, FM 95.1, each Friday morning from 10 to 11 a.m., Please tell your family and friends about public policy this week. We hope this show serves as a catalyst for important, meaningful, and in-depth conversations about public policy challenges and opportunities. Together, we can seek comprehensive, integrated, thoughtful solutions to the challenges we face in our society. Thanks, everyone. You've been listening to Public Policy This Week. Tune in every Friday morning at 10 a.m. for more conversation with policy experts. Remember, this show can be found on your favorite podcast platform or stream it from kymnradio.net.